Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, March 31st, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and on the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Today, we are also introducing Nate Leaf to our bullpen of public policy hosts. Nate is a Minnesota native and former trader in the energy markets with specialized knowledge of options trading in the North American natural gas market. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and the man sitting next to me is my co-host, Bruce Moreland. All right. Our, um, we're joined today by Joe Mehan. Did I pronounce that right, Joe? Uh, I just say man, actually. Man, okay, Joe Mann, a regional outreach director at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Prior to that, he served as a regional economist and as a staff writer and analyst for the Minneapolis Fed publications, The Region and Fed Gazette. Mann's primary responsibilities involve tracking several sectors of the Ninth District economy, an area that covers Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Montana, portions of Wisconsin and Michigan for the Fed. Sectors he follows closely include agriculture, manufacturing, energy, and mining. He holds degrees in economics and journalism from the University of Minnesota. Joe, welcome to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Thank you for having me on, and hello to all your listeners. Cool. Do you want to expand a little bit on your job title for us? Uh, we're... Yeah, well, let me just say I'm, I'm part of a team of folks at the Minneapolis Fed uh, who follow economic conditions in our region. And as your bio that you just read there indicates, our region is kind of a sort of a broad uh, north central sector section of the U.S. Um, might be good to actually back up a little bit and explain why there is a Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis and why uh, there are these different regions. Um, and we can maybe talk about that in a little bit detail uh, in a moment. We get into the kind of history and some of the other background about the Fed. But the short answer is <clears throat> that what makes the Federal Reserve federal is it's a decentralized central bank. So the Fed is America's central bank, just like the Bank of England is the UK central bank. Bank of Japan is the Japanese central bank. Um, and the Federal Reserve is the US central bank, uh, but sort of following our tradition of uh, decentralization and federalism in the United States, when they designed the Federal Reserve in the early 20th century, they broke up in the, con- the country into different Federal Reserve districts. And this was done, like I said, for institutional and historical reasons, and happy to talk more about that. Um, but it has one of the nice side benefits of um, requiring us to gather information from all over the country when we're making economic policy so that we're really making sure that we're reflecting the state of the economy and the communities across the country rather than just what's happening uh, inside the Beltway or on Wall Street. Um, It's sort of a nice feature of the Fed. There are 12 different Federal Reserve districts. The Minneapolis Fed covers the 9th Federal Reserve District. Um, so my job, along with that of my colleagues, is to follow economic conditions in our region. Um, we look at a lot of data. A lot of what we do is data-driven, obviously. Um, the challenge is that data are backward-looking. They tell us about what's been happening, uh, not necessarily where things are going. If you want to make good economic policy, you need to uh, you need to think about the future because policy that we make today has its effects in the future. So a lot of what we do is kind of goes beyond just the basic uh, statistical reports that are available to us uh, and involves really going out and speaking to a lot of community leaders and uh, and businesses in particular around our region to kind of get a sense for what they see happening in their own lines of business, in their own communities, and how the economy is working for them. And so that's kind of a long way of explaining what my job is. Uh, my title is Regional Outreach Director. Functionally, I'm a regional economist. I follow economic conditions in the region. Uh, but the outreach component sort of is a way of emphasizing that uh, we really are outward looking and um, interface with the communities broadly. 
Um, and we use this term two-way communication. So a big part of what we do is uh, gathering, obviously, we fundamentally what we're trying to do is gather information about how the economy is working for people. But in order to do that, we need to get out and communicate with people. Um, and it's also our job to answer people's questions about the Fed and about Fed policy. And, uh, and so that's kind of the outreach component to what we do. Very cool. Um, I'm going to jump in here with some history of currency and money a little bit, and then we're going to that'll give you some foundation to talk about the idea of a central bank. I hope um, yeah. you probably don't remember because it was way before our time, but it used to be that you would carry a, a bushel of beans in and say, "I'd like to trade this bushel of beans for a, you know, a wool pelt," and the the guy that you were trading with, the person you were trading with, would say, "Oh, I think that's going to take two bushels of beans," and that was the mm-hmm. barter system. And it gets real awkward to carry around bushels of beans and corn. To, to trade with. So we, we invented the idea, we got comfortable with the idea that precious metals uh, could be used instead. So we would have coined, you know, the, the currency of the realm would be coppers and silver and gold. And from that, we went to metals backed paper. And some of our listeners may remember silver certificates that actually stated mm-hmm. that you could turn in that piece of paper and get its equivalents in silver. And that's a, a commodities-backed currency. And then eventually we just go to paper. And that was, I, there's another story on that. But we went to pure paper, which is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. And along that history, I think, is where we came up with the idea of a central bank. Can you, can you provide us the background on how, where, whether I'm right or not on that history lesson? Well, you are right about that. Um, to an extent, I would, you know, what I would, what I would distinguish as being kind of the core function of a central bank, though, um, since its inception, is um, is is actually to serve as a lender of last resort in uh, in times of uh, liquidity crunches uh, or financial uh, instability, um, and that's really what central banks were originally created to be was a bank was a banker's bank uh, somewhere where banks could go uh, to get liquidity when they needed it. Um, <clears throat> Now that's intimately connected with um, with the idea of maintaining a monetary system. But um, when you have a currency backed, um, when, when you have a commodity standard, um, uh, currency backed by a commodity like gold or silver, there's not necessarily a lot of room for what we now call monetary policy, uh, because the amount of money in circulation is uh, more or less a function of how much uh, commodity there is to back it, whatever that commodity happens to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two things are related. Um, uh, but, you know, if you think about the Federal Reserve, the Fed was created actually in the, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913. Um, uh, we were still on a gold standard at that time up until uh, the, the early part of the Depression when uh, President Roosevelt took us off the gold standard. And that was really when monetary policy becomes uh, really comes into play, because prior to that, um, the Fed Central Bank doesn't really have a lot of leeway for influencing the supply of money. Right. Um, without the, I remember there was a big kerfuffle about don't crucify us on a cross of gold. Was that part of that whole discussion about uh, the fact that we didn't have enough gold to provide the currency that we needed? Yeah, absolutely. So that's William Jennings Bryan, the famous uh, the the, fa- the famous uh, cross of gold speech. Uh, that was kind of part of the progressive era. Was this idea that you know, the gold standard was something that was a really um, uh, it was a really good policy if you were a banker um, or if you were somebody who had a lot of money and wanted wanted money to um, to maintain its eval- its value. You know, the, the the benefit of a gold standard, as I laid out already, is that it ties the supply of currency to the amount of gold that can back it. The problem with a gold standard is that it ties the supply of currency to the amount of gold that can back it. Right. <laughs> I love two um, so it's. <laughs> What's that you said? I love two-edged swords. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, and so uh, William Jennings Bryan, in making that cross of gold speech, was really speaking for the kind of broader progressive movement at that time, which was advocating more monetary flexibility, um, because if you think in particular of the term, the, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, the history of ag- agrarian progressivism that he was speaking for, uh, it was really farmers who saw themselves as being hurt by the gold standard because... It was keeping interest rates high. That made it that made it difficult to borrow money to finance farms, which we know is still something farms need to do a lot of today. Um, farming is a heavily seasonal business. Um, you need you need liquidity to get you through the uh, the tight liquidity crunched periods of uh, of the year um, until you get that big 
uh, that big f- uh, flush uh, uh, flow of cash at harvest time, right? Mm-hmm. So borrowing, you know, credit has always been, or at least for a long time, has been a part of uh, part of the business of farming. Um, and so there was a there was a perception that banks really liked the gold standard because it allowed them to charge, it allowed them to earn very high interest rates on the loans that they charged, but it was bad for farmers. So that's kind of the history of that. Oh, wow. Um, it should be pointed out that what what I, I believe what William Jennings Bryan was, was arguing for in the Cross of Gold speech was a bimetallic standard, right. uh, a gold and silver standard, um, which is actually something that we were on for most of the 19th century. The gold right. standard that we were on in the early 20th century um, uh, came along in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. That's a nice segue into a discussion of the specifics of, of policymaking. Um, I guess I'd ask, what are the primary measures the Fed uses to determine where to set policy and, and what are the targets for each of those measures? Yeah, so this is a good question. So um, uh, so the Federal Reserve, let me just mention, you know, what we're best known for is monetary policy. And that's probably most of what we'll be talking about uh, today. But it should be mentioned, we are a bank. Um, as I mentioned already, we're a banker's bank. Uh, we're the U.S. government's bank, uh, so we're the fiscal agent of the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury keeps its accounts at the Federal Reserve, um, <clears throat> and we regulate banks as well. Um, so those, those are some other important features that we have. We also maintain uh, pretty important parts of the payments, what we call the payment system. So that's electronic funds transfers, um, <clears throat> and uh, we process checks as well. And, of course, we maintain the nation's supply, uh, the, the physical integrity of the nation's supply of currency. Um, but the thing that we're most in the news for usually is monetary policy, which is, um, as we've been discussing, the the influence of the supply of money in and credit in the economy. Um, now, per federal law, the Federal Reserve is required to make monetary policy um, with a couple of objectives in mind, what we call the dual mandate. Um, this was the Humphrey Hawkins Act of uh, uh, the, the 1970s. Um, and those objectives are maximum employment and price stability. So you can think of those in terms of low unemployment, um, maximum employment we think of as being basically anybody who is able to work and wants to work can find a job. Um, <clears throat> and price stability is low low and stable inflation. Um, now, the, the, the letter of the law actually stipulates um, maximum employment, price stability, and uh, moderate long-term interest rates. Now, we refer to it as the dual mandate, and we think about um, maximum employment and price stability primarily as being those two objectives because moderate long-term interest rates sort of in the service of those other two objectives. Um, as you know, we want to, we want to be setting interest rates in such a way as to, um, as to ensure that the labor market is functioning properly and that the dollar is keeping its value over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the, those are the objectives in terms of how we measure those. Um, inflation is, um, I don't want to overstate that how easy it is to measure because it's actually somewhat complicated and we can talk a lot more about that. Um, but it's more directly observable uh, because we have good data on prices. And you know, we've, we've been obviously living through a period of longer inflation over the last couple of years. <clears throat> and uh, we have a number of different price indices that we can use to kind of measure the purchasing power of the dollar. Um, and so inflation is uh, is, is easier to measure, and we have an, you know, the, the Federal Reserve actually has uh, a formal inflation target of two percent growth in uh, a particular inflation measure, which is called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, um, over the intermediate term, over over the medium to long run. Um, so that's easier to declare. What exactly full employment is is uh, is is a more uh, complicated matter. Because there's lots of different measures of how the labor market is performing. Um, there's the unemployment rate, which is what people usually look at at the end of the month. Um, <clears throat> that's just one measure of the stance of the labor market. <clears throat> we can look at other measures like the labor force participation rate um, and, uh, and uh, kind of broader, broader measures of the stance of the labor market uh, to try and get a sense for whether we're at or near full employment. Um, but that's not necessarily... Uh, a magical level of the unemployment rate that says when we hit X percent unemployment, we're at full employment. Um, <clears throat> so it's really about keeping those two things in balance and making sure that the labor market is functioning well for people, that people can get jobs and that they're <clears throat> um, and the labor market is functioning properly um, and uh, and that the dollar is keeping its value over the longer term. 
you mentioned the 1970s and the yeah. impetus for for managing inflation that came out of that and people who remember um double digit interest rates for mortgages and whatnot um then we go through this period of several decades where inflation is relatively low and then only recently we start to see signs of it percolating again are there concerns mm -hmm. now about um uh, our ability to manage it is there more confidence than there than there has been um is there uh concern about what's causing this um reawakening if you will of inflationary pressure so i think the answer to all those questions is yes um <laughs> oh, okay so, so are there concerns there is always concerns um when we see inflation start to accelerate um that it's going to get um it's going to get outside of a range that we're comfortable with and it's going to take on momentum of its own um and uh and you know the the 1970s was a period where we didn't just have um, we didn't just have high inflation over a period of a year or two, like we're seeing right now, but over a much longer period. And people had kind of lost confidence in, um, in, in the, uh, in the value of the dollar and the ability of, um, of our policymakers to really protect it. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think about that. I mean, fundamentally inflation is driven by people's expectations, um, because there, there, there aren't, um, there aren't physical laws of nature or um, or 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 judicial laws that that determine uh, what prices are going to be for things. Those are determined by people's people's own decisions and supply and demand, and those are fundamentally driven by people's expectations. So, what people are going to accept in payment for goods and services is uh, is is driven by their belief about the value of the currency. And once we lose that confidence, that becomes really dangerous. And I think that broadly broadly um, accepted that that's essentially what happened in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so that's always a concern. And you mentioned that 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 period of really high interest rates in the, the early 1980s, um, that what we call the Volcker disinflation under Paul Volcker, that was then chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, <clears throat> uh, the uh, you know, that, that was a period where interest rates got up into um, into the double digits. Mortgage rates were exorbitant. Um, and it caused a very severe recession in uh, in the economy, um, where we saw unemployment get up over ten percent. Um, one of the worst recessions we've had since the Great Depression. Um, and so there's a view, I think, among both economists and within the Federal Reserve that the Federal Reserve's credibility as an inflation fighter came at great cost, and we don't want to have to uh, we don't want to have to relive that episode. So, so that's always a concern. Um, now, as far as confidence um, and whether or not there's, uh, you know, whether or not we're concerned about, uh, or we, we need to worry about re repeating that scenario, um, there are there are sort of market based measures of longer term inflationary expectations, and those are more anchored. So, the good news here is that you can look at um, at measures like the 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 um, the difference between uh, the 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 rate on treasury securities and inflation protected treasury securities as sort of the market's best guess at what inflation is going to be over a two five ten year window and those are more anchored those are coming in much closer to that two percent longer term target so the markets right now are still telling us that they have a fair amount of confidence that we're going to be able to get back to an acceptable level of inflation so so when the Fed sets the interest rates on bonds is that right. You set you set interest rates on uh, treasury bonds, or is the treasury no? We set them? we don't set them. We don't set interest rates on bonds directly. The decisions, the monetary policy decisions that we make, um, are going to have some influence on on uh, treasury yields. So, so if I were looking at treasury yields on thirty year bond, uh, bonds or ten year or whatever, um, the difference between what the bond market would pay for that bond and what the interest rate was on the bond would be a reflection of what the if you will, mass expectation of inflation. Right. So there's, um, you know, there, there are, um, there's a, a class of treasuries that are called we, TIPS is the acronym Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, and those have um, an inflation correction component built into the yield that they pay. Okay. And um, all of these securities, uh, you know, they have a huge and uh, robust secondary market for them. So 
the yields on treasury bonds are driven by uh, again supply and demand for uh, for U.S. Treasuries, mm. um, and so you can look at sort of the difference in the yield on uh, on an inflation protected security and the the normal treasury, the, the non inflation protected one, as being essentially the market's guess of what the inflation rate is going to be um, over say a ten year window. Okay, and I need and to right go- now those are oh. those are coming in at around two and a half percent. Okay, I, I couldn't tell you what they are today right now offhand, yeah. um, but again lower than the rate of inflation that we've been experiencing over the last two years mm-hmm. and more in line with our target. I have to go back to something you said. I don't know if, if our listeners will all remember, but I do, wearing a, a whip inflation now button because the administration thought it was all about the psychology, and if we could just convince people that inflation was dead, then it would die. Do you remember those mm-hmm. buttons, or have you ever heard of those? I, I wish I still. I've had heard them. of them, <laughs> um, and I've actually I've seen them. I mean, they're they're kind of an interesting feature of you know of uh, I guess we'll say pop economic history. Mm-hmm. Um, that was during the I believe the presidency of Gerald Ford when we yes. started to see inflation really take off mm-hmm. after the fuel crisis of the nineteen uh, the the early nineteen seventies. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a there was a certain truth that they reflected, which is that inflation, as I mentioned earlier, is driven by people's expectations. Expectations are a matter of people's psychology. Um, now that's all true, and there's a there's a there's a sense in which we could say, well, if we can just get everybody to believe that we're not going to be in an inflationary world, um, then then we'll get to that world, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes a self a good sort of self fulfilling prophecy, right? right? Yeah. Um, the problem is that. People aren't stupid, and they make their decisions based on the information that's available to them and um, and with some degree of, of rationality, um, and you can't just tell people what to believe, right? So just telling everybody, hey, let's all hope for the best outcome isn't really going to do any good if they look at um, you know the fiscal situation of the, the U.S. government, if they look at the fact that prices... Um, uh, you know, prices for for fuel are seem to be seem to be increasing constantly, and some of the other things they were looking at in the 1970s, um, and losing confidence in 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 the uh, the long term stability, uh, the 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 the, the, the long term value of the dollar. Right. I, I think there was a Disney movie where the audience was all supposed to believe and applaud to show that they believed, so that something would happen magically. And mm-hmm. I'm always having fun with that. I, a real quick question, not in the script, but um. Was up until after the depression, when we came off the gold standard, that was internally, but a- externally we were yeah. still on the gold standard until Nixon in I think seventy one took us off the Bretton Accords. Do you think yeah. there was any relationship between that action, which all of a sudden we weren't locked to gold internationally and let the dollar float, and the inflationary that came with it came after that? I think there certainly there certainly was a connection. How much? Um, how much of a connection there was is um, uh, not something I really feel confident. You know how 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 heavily causal that move away from the Bretton Woods system uh, was uh, is is not something I really feel comfortable um, uh, you know stipulating. Um, it certainly would have played a role, but yeah, that's an important distinction to make. So we were on a gold standard domestically until uh, the early 1930s, and the domestic gold standard essentially just says that we're fixing the value of a dollar at. Um, and at that time, it was one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold. Right. Um, and uh, the gold standard internationally, the Bretton Woods system, which was set up after World War II, um, was essentially intended to fix exchange rates between the major economies around the world in order to provide some measure of international financial stability so they wouldn't have these wild fluctuations in exchange rates affecting trade. Um, and that became incre- increasingly impracticable, and we went off the Bretton Woods system in 1971. Uh, I, real quick, I have to. Have you ever heard of goldbacks? I'm going to tell you what a goldback is. I'm told that there are these dollar bill-like pieces of paper you can buy. That if you put them in a fire and melt them down, you'll get one thousandth of an ounce of gold. And so they're literally gold-backed dollar bills. And they, of course, they're not legal tender, but they're something you can buy as a, a gag or as a gift for your friends, I suppose. I have to confess, I've never heard of them. Oh well, there's um, something different. <laughs> I've... But if people if people want to use them as money, they're perfectly free to use them as money. Oh yeah, they're like a. Anyway, so ahead. Joe, what what then are the primary tools the Fed uses to move the needles? Right. So good question. Um, so we don't. Yeah, yeah, we don't. You know, oftentimes you hear in the press the Fed uh, raised interest rates, lowered interest rates. Lately, we've been raising interest rates. Um, 
important thing to, to, to point out, there's a particular interest rate that we target, and that's the what we call the Fed funds rate. That's the overnight interest rate that banks charge each other on loans on reserve balances. Um, so quick digression on the business of banking. Every day, banks have to make sure that they hit their reserve target. Um, so when you put, uh, you know, if you put a dollar in a bank, they need to keep 10 cents of it on hand to make sure that they um, have liquidity adequate to meet depositors' needs when they want to when they want to take money out of banks. Um, that's the reserve part of our name. So they keep the reserve accounts uh, with the Fed. They're required to keep a certain amount of the depositors' cash in reserve. Um, if they don't have that uh, requirement met at the end of the day, they need to borrow to get that requirement. Um, obviously, there are payments coming in and out of banks every day. It's it's a it's a complicated business, and there's a lot of transactions. Um, and so uh, these are just overnight loans. So a bank might close its doors at the end of the day and might not be at its res- at, a, at its at its uh, reserve target. And so they need to borrow overnight um, <clears throat> from banks that have excess reserves. Um, so the Fed funds rate is the um, is the going rate on those very very extremely short term. Um, very low chance of default loans. So it's obviously because it, because it's there was short term and a low chance of default, almost zero chance of default. Um, that's a very low interest rate, but it's a core part of the cost of doing a business at a bank, and it's um, and it's tied to a lot of other interest rates. Um, and you can also think of it as being a measure as being a reflection of the amount of uh, the amount of credit, um, the amount of money and credit available in the economy. So. Like any other, uh, like any other market price, it's determined by supply and demand. Um, so when there are periods where you have a lot of excess reserves, uh, not a lot of banks with um, uh, below their reserve target, that rate's going to be low. low. Um, so the Federal Reserve intervenes in that market um, through what we call open market operations. We buy and sell treasury securities from banks um, uh, in order to influence the supply of loanable funds in that market uh, the, and the supply of reserves. Okay. Um, and that is the Fed funds rate, and that's the rate that we target. But it's important to point out that when we say uh, we're raising that target by a certain range, it is a target. Um, they, they, the, the Federal Open Market Committee is the body that makes these decisions. They meet eight times a year. And... Um, Incidentally, it's made up of the presidents of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks and the members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, which is in Washington. Um, We can talk more about how that's structured if you want to unpack that a little bit. Um, uh, But they meet eight times a year, and they determine, based on the way the economy is looking and the way the data are coming in, um, what the status of monetary policy should be. And they set that target. But then um, we actually need to conduct the open market operations to make that happen. So there's a trading desk at the New York Fed that buys and that that buys and sells securities to influence that market. So that's really that kind of core. When they talk about the Fed raising and lowering interest rates, that's that that's usually what they're talking about. And the Fed, after the FOMC meets, they make a statement saying, "Here's what we decided to do and why we decided to, uh, in in the most recent meeting, raise interest rates by a by a, a quarter of a point, 25 basis points, or raise the the, the target range, um, and." Um, and uh, that's that's sort of the core, um, the, the core um, uh, tool that we have. There are other tools as well, um, and one of them is really more of a what you might call a kind of psychological tool. Um, so <clears throat> let me back up and explain that um, when we've now um, we've now been raising that target range for a year, the Federal Open Market Committee has been has been hiking rates for a year. Um, well, when they first made that. Uh, decision in March of 2022 to raise the target range by only 25 basis points, market interest rates spiked. Mortgage rates went up. Um, treasury uh, treasury rates went up. Um, and that was because um, of the the guidance that the Fed provided in, that, in its statement. Um, so they try and provide a little bit more detail about the thinking behind those decisions. And again, where we are relative to the dual mandate the fact that inflation had gotten unacceptably high and was proving to be consistent and was becoming more broad, um, and uh, and the you know market participants looked at that statement and they said, okay, the Fed's not just going to raise rates twenty five basis points. They're you know they're 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 entering a regime of tightening monetary policy, um, and so that's that kind of forward guidance tool. It's being clear, trying to communicate um, what we see and what the thinking is behind these decisions. Um, and so that ends up being a lot more powerful than just 
where we set that particular rate. So if you had known at the beginning of this tightening that you were going to be reaching at 5%, you could have just set the interest rate two and a half points higher and everything would have been, and you wouldn't have had to change it. You could just ridden through this. And the answer to that, of course, is no, because the tools you're playing with are like the brakes and the gas pedal on a Minnesota icy road. You got to feather them lightly and move them. You can't just jump in heavy. If you do, the markets will go crazy. I mean, look how crazy they went just realizing that you're changing to a tighter policy. Does that seem? Yeah, fair? that's a very good analogy. That that you know idea of driving a car where there's a delay between the the gas and the brakes. Um, again, because the decisions that uh, the policy that they're setting today is going to have its effects in the future. Mm-hmm. It takes time for those things to matter. If you think about all these things we're talking about are really financial matters, rates on on, on short-term loans, um, treasuries, and th- things of that nature. Um, where they have their effects on the real economy takes time to unfold. What the, you know, and, and, and what are those effects? Well, when you're... Again, it comes back to supply and demand. When you're increasing interest rates, that means it's going to be more expensive to buy a house, to get a loan to remodel your house, um, to buy a car. If you're a business and you want to uh, expand your uh, your capacity, it's going to be more expensive to finance that. And so all of those things are going to, you know, tightening monetary policy is going to pull down on demand, right? But those things, those effects take time to manifest in the economy. And so, uh, you know, you want to be you know, the, 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 that, that's why they tend to be, you know, somewhat incremental in their movements. And again, they want, they're always clear in stating, here's where we are relative to those two core goals, maximum employment, price stability. And what they've been saying over the last years, labor market is still very strong. Um, inflation is exce- unacceptably high and has, and has been, and has become persistent and we need to get inflation down. And that's really what's driving those decisions. One more question real quick. Now Nate wants to get back in with the real track. But we keep talking about liquidity. And yeah, it, yeah that's a good point. Um, anyway, the liquidity, I'd like you to clarify a little bit what you mean by that. And for me, what comes to mind is the bank run in that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. where the bank didn't have enough reserves to cover the rush. And, in fact, my understanding is that's part of the reason the FDIC came in the way it did was to uh, make it so people wouldn't feel like they had to rush to the bank if things started looking bad. Uh, is that so? What do you mean by liquidity? How does that work? Yeah, that's that, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, liquidity um, really just means cash um, uh, ultimately, but um, the ability to uh, the the or the ability to quickly produce cash. Okay. Um, so you can think about liquidity like in a particular bank or liquidity in the economy. Um, we all need cash. Uh, well, not necessarily physical cash, but we all need money to. Um, you know, to to conduct transactions, to pay our bills, to buy the things that we need, um, for businesses to continue making payroll and keep their workers paid. Um, and so, liquidity is all really uh, about having um, cash on hand, whether physical or whether in a bank account, um, to to make those transactions happen. Um, mm-hmm. Now, banks um, can become illiquid because the fundamental business of a bank is to take deposits, which are just short-term loans. When you put your money in, in a bank, you are lending that bank your money, and they're then using that money to lend out to customers. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they, by taking deposits, borrow short-term at a low interest rate from a lot of people, and they make loans that are longer-term at a higher interest rate to fewer people. And the math of that usually works out uh, to be a profitable business. And because most people don't necessarily want to pull all their money out of the bank at the same time, that's not usually a problem. Um, but at any given time, if any of us, if we wanted to, um, any bank could become illiquid if all of its depositors or enough of them showed up asking for their money back. Because one of the f- key features of a deposit that makes it different from a different kind of, from other kinds of lending is that it's, you get your money back on demand. Any other kind of loan, if you think of, you pay back on a certain amount of terms. You, you only have to pay back a certain amount every month. You can pay it in advance, but your bank can't just come to you and say, hey, can you, can you pay back your auto loan in total next month because you have a contract, right? Um, well, deposits are different in that sense that we can always get our money back at any given time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what makes uh, banks at any time um, uh, at risk of experiencing a run, 
Um, and that's actually where the role for deposit insurance comes in. You mentioned the FDIC. Um, <clears throat> that's sort of um, that 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 that's why we have deposit insurance. So, but again, ultimately, it's just about insurance ensuring that there's enough liquidity uh, because we know from historical experience that when we have banking panics. Um, in the 19th century, when we didn't really have a, a formal central bank in the, in the United States, mm. uh, we had uh, severe banking panics every 15 or so years, and they tended to be followed by prolonged economic depressions. Mm. So those things do have real consequences, ultimately. Indeed. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host is Bruce Moreland. We are talking with Joe Mann of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. All right. So I'm going to take us down into the weeds a little bit. Um, All right. I'm going to claim that large models are at the heart of the process, and I'd like to look under the hood a little bit if we could do that. Um, I think that my interpretation is we have the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model, which kind of went out of business, I guess, and, or, and there's also the one called the Furbus. So if you could talk briefly about those two models, and then I'm going to investigate what the, how those models behave. So, um, so yeah, let me, let me take these two things in turn. Um, I'm actually going to start with, um, Furbus, FRBUS. Um, is a large-scale, what we call a structural uh, econometric model of the U.S. economy. What econometric means is using statistics to uh, to conduct economic measurement, to either test economic theories or to make forecasts. And in this case, FURBIS is a forecasting model. It's meant to, um, to project um, macroeconomic aggregates, things like employment, um, GDP, um, and, uh, and price, uh, prices over time. Um, and, and you can, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do, uh, economic forecasting. Um, there's, as I mentioned, these sort of large scale structural, uh, econometric models. Um, uh, but those are, those are all used to inform, um, inform, uh, policy, but really they're, they're used to inform thinking about the economic environment, not necessarily to tell us, you know, we don't just plug the data into a model and the model spits out here's what the target interest rate should be. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's more of a, you know, it's more of an art. It's more of an art than that. Um, I should say. Uh, and again, because we're, you know, the, 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 the a prediction of a model is only as good as the data that are going into it and the assumptions of the model. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be large errors around that. And the other thing that is that what happens in the economy is driven by unpredictable shocks that hit the economy. You can't necessarily have a model that's going to tell you that Russia is going to invade the Ukraine and it's going to wreak havoc on commodities markets um, and it's going to drive up inflation, right? Um, those shocks by nature are unpredictable, right? So you can't plan for those. Um, and so, uh, so, so the kind of economic forecasting models on, in and of themselves are of limited use for actually making policy um, because of that. Now, you mentioned, just to, just to go back quickly to your question, um, you mentioned dynam dynamic stochastic general equilibrium, or what we call DSGE models. Um, that's not one particular uh, that's not one particular model. It's a whole class of kind of how you how you think about um, uh, modeling the economy and the effects of policy. Um, and so, um, a lot more a lot more that could be said about that. But essentially, those are those are ways of modeling the economy as uh, as in equilibrium and people making the best decisions uh, that they have available to them. Um, but they're, you know, like, like all economic models, um, they are false by definition <laughs> because if they were, if they were true, then they wouldn't be a model. It would just be the real world, right? right. Yeah. You have to make simplifying assumptions. Um, so DSGE models are essentially about kind of trying to fit models of the economy to the data, uh, and learn what they might tell us about how the economy works. Uh, and again, to the extent that they can be used to inform policy, that's great. Uh, but a lot of that work is really kind of more academic, really kind of more what you think about as being basic research, learning about how the economy functions. Both of these models then are using first principles ideas like prices go one way and demand go, you know, supply demand curves, but also trying to relate the connection between heating oil and transportation costs, things like that. Are they operating with that kind of insight in them? Yes. Um, DSGE models are really driven more by kind of economic theory, um, are thinking about how people make their decisions, 
um, and uh, and this idea that um, that people are forward thinking. Um, so to, just to kind of break it down, dynamic. These decisions are happening over time. Stochastic. There's randomness or shocks in the economy, um, and then general equilibrium is just the idea that um, markets are you know are moving toward a place where supply equals demand. That's kind of how those works. They're built on economic theory, but yeah. again, uh, even the most complicated versions of them. Um, and there are very complex versions of them that require supercomputers to solve, right? Yeah. Um, but even the most complex versions of them are simplifications of the real economy. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, at one Fed site, we are told that these models are documented and available in the programming language Python. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll remind everybody of that again later in the show. But for all, for all the real heavy wonks out there, go out and get the code and see what you can do with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So we know what the Fed is known for watching, uh, though we are sure uh, they're watching much more than what we've uh, discussed here. And we know what primary tools they have. Can we start by revisiting what the targets are and asking how those target levels were developed? Yeah. So um, let me start with with inflation, because, again, that one's a little bit more straightforward, um, just because there's not an explicit full em- full employment target. Um uh, I'll talk about that in, in, in a moment, but I think more people are more interested in inflation right now anyway, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I mentioned earlier that we have an explicit 2% target for inflation uh, over the, over the, the medium to, uh, to long run. Um, well, why 2%? Um, actually, let me first explain, what do we mean by 2%? Because there are different measures of inflation. The one that most people are familiar with, if you follow the news is the consumer price index. That's the CPI. Um, that's a broad-based measure of the cost of living in urban areas around the country. Um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which releases the CPI, has a team of um, just under 500 economists in the field across the country who go out and record prices for goods. Um, they try and make adjustments for the fact that um, that businesses are clever and they do things like reducing the amount of cereal in the box rather than increasing the price for cereal, right? Those these things that we call hedonics. Um, they also try and make adjustments for the fact that the quality of things changes over time. And if you think about things like cell phones, for example, one interesting thing that people have pointed out, just interestingly, um, the, the, the component of CPI that represents smartphones has, has been one of the few examples you can find of really strong deflation in the economy recently. The price of smartphones has been going down. Now, anyone who's bought a smartphone recently hasn't experienced that. Um, uh, because you know they're they're pretty expensive. I mean, if you bought whatever the latest iPhone is, um, you know those are those are quite expensive. Well, part of the reason um, that we see in this deflation in smartphone prices is because of the just amazing technological developments in personal mobile devices. The fact that a, the phone that you carry in your pocket now is far more powerful than a computer was twenty plus years ago, um, and trying to make those kind of adjustments over time. So those are harder to do. A uh, little, little wonky side note for you on that. <laughs> the particular measure that we follow with regard to inflation is uh, a related but different measure called the per- Personal Consumption Expenditures Chain Type Price Index. Um, this is released by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. They're the people who release the statistics on GDP. This is a deflator that they use for inflation adjusting um, the monthly releases on personal consumption spending in the U.S., right? So if you want to inflation adjust these things, you need a price index to make those inflation adjustments. Um, uh, it's different. It's related to, but different than CPI. Um, and uh, one of the things that makes it different is uh, they use what's the, what makes a chain type in the name. Um, they use a chained uh, weighting system. So everything in these price indexes weighted by how important they are um, as part of a typical household's budget. Um, so obviously people spend a lot of their money on rent, spend a lot of their money on food, spend a lot of their money on gas. Those things have higher weights in the index. Um, the CPI is just a weighted average of price changes over time, and that's kind of how we get measure inflation data from the CPI. The PCE changes the weights um, to account for the fact that, again, people are smart. Um, they, they're they make they adjust their decisions, their purchasing decisions based on changes in prices. So when peanut butter gets more expensive, you don't just buy less peanut butter; you also buy less jelly as well, right? Um, so they use a chain weighting formula to try and account for the real cost of living to real people who are having to adjust their budgets in light of the changes in prices, right? Um, so that's the one that we target is the PCE index 
I should also mention it includes data, it includes information from businesses as well as uh, as well as consumer costs. Um, and it's um, um, it also it includes information from rural areas as well as cities. Um, so for a, 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 an array of reasons, this is they're, they're, and, they're, and they track very closely together over time. So in some ways, it's an academic distinction, um, but PCE gives you kind of a clearer signal of uh, if inflation over time, or, or at least over the, the real cost of living, the real value of a dollar. Um, okay, so that's what we're that's what we're targeting is that particular price index um, that we want we want that to be to average two percent over the long the long run. Why two percent? There's not a magical reason. There's not something that comes from, um, as you put it, Bruce, first principles to say 2% is the right rate of inflation. Um, uh, that's more of a, that's more of a, an adjustment for the real world. Um, because 2% is, um, not zero. <laughs> it's a little bit more than zero. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from experience that, um, people can live with, uh, and learn to live with low, if stable and predictable rates of inflation over time, um, deflation can be very bad. And so if we were trying to keep inflation at zero over a long period of time, we run the risk that some shock hits the economy and pushes us into deflationary territory. Uh, we get into a deflationary spiral. Uh, we can talk more about why that's a bad thing, um, but that's a risk that you run um, if you don't have that cushion there. So that's the reason, that's kind of the reason basically for why most central banks around the world have an inflation target that's around 2% rather than zero, uh, just because it gives us that little bit of a cushion. That's um, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for that one. Um, the next question would be, why is unemployment set at 4%? Uh, again, it seems like we want everybody working, but isn't there an economic argument? Well, it's not. So the Federal Reserve doesn't target uh, like a 4% rate of employment. 4% is you often see listed as um, sometimes people use the term the natural rate of unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea there um, is that, um, and again, this is an idea that's just kind of out of the economics literature, um, that there are always going to be people who are uh, voluntarily leaving their jobs to go look for better jobs. Um, there are always going to be plants that are laying off people and people needing to find new jobs. So there's always there's a lot of churn happening in the economy. There are always going to be some people who are out of work uh, temporarily. And there's this idea um, that you have like a natural rate of unemployment. Um, and some people say 4%. Well, we, we're way below 4% right now, um, have been for, for quite some time, were for quite some time prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, before unemployment shot up really high and came back down again very quickly, um, so that's not necessarily uh, the right rate of unemployment. The, the the natural rate of unemployment, such as it exists, is not really directly observable, um, and it probably moves around based on structural changes in the economy. So we don't really think about full employment in terms of we want unemployment to be averaging around a certain rate. Um, the way we really think about it is. Um, can people find jobs? Is the labor force participation rate high? Um, and are people's are uh, you know are people's wages keeping up with the cost of living? Right. So, like everything else in economics, you have um, uh, you know supply and demand determine not determine not just the quantity but also the price. Um, and the price of labor is wages. And so we can also observe wages and the growth in wages over time to tell us um, where we think the labor market is relative to uh to to full employment but there isn't like i said earlier a magic number that we target in terms of full employment now one thing i'll just mention before we move on briefly um the federal open market committee a few years ago um uh updated its um its framework for um for for full employment and um you can find this on uh, federalreserve.gov that's the board of governors website um and they they made it clear that they want that full employment target to be what they call a broad-based and inclusive goal. Um, it's not just good enough if the unemployment rate is 4%, but the black unemployment rate is 8 or 9%, right? That's not broad-based. That's not inclusive, right? right? So we want to look at a lot of different measures of how the economy is working and make sure that it's working for everyone. Right. And I'm curious, um, is there a lot of difference of opinion about how to interpret this, uh, or is it pretty much everybody's on board with it, or, or are you constantly having to teach everybody? Um, yeah, I'm, there are definitely differences of opinion. You know, the, so the Federal Open Market Committee, when they meet, um, they, you know, the, 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 the reason it's a committee is because 
there's a lot of people who are looking at different information and forming forming different opinions and have different mental models of what's going on, yep. um, or in some cases, you know, or in most cases, explicit economic models of what's going on. Um, and they have to deliberate and make these decisions, right? Um, at any given time, any of the members of the committee can not sign on to, they take a vote. And, um, and it says in the statement who, uh, whether the decision was unanimous or whether there were dissenters, and you can read those things mm-hmm. um, over time. And in fact, um, the committee's um, uh, transcripts are declassified after five years. So you can go back and read the old ones and read, read the discussion if you want to. And that's all on the Board of Governors website. Um, so there's always differences of opinion and that's the whole, that's the whole purpose. You know, it's, there's, there's an old joke that if two people agree on something, then, um, then you have, you know, one more person than you need. Right. Um, that's why we, that's, but that's why they have a committee. Right. right. Um, the, 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 yeah. ver- the version I've heard of that is if you have a room with 10 economists in it, you'll get 15 opinions. That's also true. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to follow up with another follow up sort of, um, first of all, the, uh, the fact that so much information is available on this is just astonishing. As I was in, in the conservative and libertarian circles, we often talk about auditing the Fed. It's like sit around the campfire, drink beer, pontificate, and let's audit the Fed. And everybody goes, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> I have to tell everybody that as I was learning more about this issue and going out and reading about the Fed, as I researched this program, I've come to realize that the Fed is probably one of the most transparent NGOs out there. I mean, you publish almost a blizzard of information, and as anybody's ever tried to find their, you know, car keys in a snowdrift knows, sometimes the <laughs> blizzard is, is is tough. But it, it's all out there; it's very open, and um, and I applaud you guys for that. That's it's it's really refreshing to see that much information out there. Uh, something we haven't covered very well, and I think this is a good place for you to mention it: the Fed is independent of the other of yeah. the, the government. You're not a not beholding to any one of the branches is that right can you explain how that it, works so yeah that's true so the, the the federal in our name as i mentioned earlier is a description of the structure of the system we're not a federal agency um each of those 12 reserve banks is it, its own separately chartered nonprofit corporation um and then we're overseen by the board of governors in washington um you often hear jay powell is currently the chair of the federal reserve prior to him it was janet yellen ben bernanke Alan greenspan um, they, that person is referred to as the chair of the Fed. That person is actually the chair of the board of governors of the Federal Reserve System. So that's the governing body that oversees the system, and that is a government. There is a government uh, that is a government agency. Um, but the system itself was created by the government by an act of Congress. Um, but we are independent um, from the government when we we provide our own funding as well. Um, and so, uh, so that makes us actually much more similar to the post office or to Amtrak in that way, and that we're a creature of the government, but we're not a government agency. Um, but, you know, at any time, the law could change. Uh, we're accountable to Congress, ultimately. That's why mm-hmm. the chair has to go give testimony to Congress on a regular basis about, um, you know, about the the status of monetary policy. Uh, that's all part of that process of being transparent. I should be clear, like, thank you for saying that we do a good job of being transparent. Um, the reason for that isn't necessarily because we're good people or something like that, um, or we, you know, we have we have good values. It's because we've learned over time that policy works better if it's transparent. If we're trying to be clear about uh, these decisions, that you know, what's driving these decisions, mm-hmm. um, and not be mysterious and emerge from behind the curtain uh, with a puff of smoke or something like that. Um, so over time, the Fed has become a more transparent institution because of that realization. Um, now, there is some need for confidentiality uh, because we're talking about information that can have big effects on markets, market moving information. And as with any other kind of sensitive market moving information, there's always potential for uh, gaming the system and corruption. And so that's why there's a need for confidentiality. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a balancing act like everything else. Uh, market moving information being things like when Elon Musk tweets that he's going to sell Tesla and <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but that's what you meant. Something no. that you got might drop in a coffee yeah. conversation, then all of a sudden the market goes crazy. So, well, yeah, and, and you can see every time the FOMC makes a decision, there is a stock market reaction, there's a bond market reaction. Uh, sometimes it's more extreme, and sometimes it's more muted. Um, we try and be clear about, you know, try and sort of telegraph how we're thinking about these things so it doesn't 
you know, cause too much volatility in the markets. Yeah. Although because there are those market reactions, somebody who has that information in advance could act on that information. Right. And of course that would be illegal and, right. and, um, and wrong too. Well, there's a huge market in people who try to predict what the fed is going to do and who try and act on it a day before everybody else can. So sure. Yeah. That's the game. All right. Joe, we often hear about M1, M2, and M3. Are these important uh, measures, or are they just byproducts of monetary policy? And could cryptocurrency represent M4? Um, so let me take those in turn. Are they important measures? Yes. What are M- First of all, what are M1 and M2? These are, these are what we call monetary aggregates, or measure of, measures of the supply of money in the economy. Um, there have been periods in the Fed's history where we targeted the growth rates of monetary aggregates as a matter of policy rather than targeting interest rates like we do right now. Um, what we've learned over time is that targeting interest rates makes more sense in, and increasingly more so because technology, and this is getting into the, maybe the crypto part of your question, um, technology is always changing what exactly money is, right? So M1 and M2 are different ways. They, they're, M1 is less broad and M2 is a broader measure of the supply of money. Um, you know, those include things like, um, you know, the, you know, reserve balances at banks, checking accounts, things like that. What exactly you want to count as money, um, in that aggregate. Um, and that is always changing over time, especially as we move toward more toward a, a, a cash, a cashless or an electronic, um, payment system. Um, so it becomes harder and harder to actually measure what is money over time. But what we can measure are interest rates and, and inflation prices, right? So that's why around the world, central banks have moved toward um, interest rates as the primary tool for, um, you know, for targeting uh, in terms of making monetary policy and inflation targeting as the primary tool for assessing how we're doing rather than looking at the growth rates of monetary aggregates. Cool. Inflation often feels like a tax and the national debt is nearly 150% of GDP. How closely does the Fed watch the debt-to-GDP ratio, given that you don't have any direct access to tools that can fix that problem? Is that an important thing Yes, I think thing you've, you've kind of already answered that question, um, which is, you know, obviously it's something that we watch because, um, you know, fiscal policy is going to affect our ability to be effective with terms, in terms of monetary policy. But there is a distinction between what we do at the Fed, which is monetary policy, influencing the supply of money and credit, and fiscal policy, which is levying taxes or raising debt to finance expenditures by government, right? Mm-hmm. And those two things are related. It's not such a clean line in, in the real world. Um, but we're responsible for monetary policy, and so that's what we're focused on. It's Congress and the president that are responsible for fiscal policy, and that's ultimately uh, accountable to the public and appropriately so. So we don't necessarily weigh in on uh, what we think the stance of fiscal policy should be. But you did hit on something really important, though, which is this idea that inflation is a tax in some ways. Uh, and that actually gets back to the independence of the Federal Reserve and why central banks around the world have moved toward this model of having some independence from the political process. Um, because uh, governments can always, um, you know, take some of the pressure off of themselves by debasing the currency. And I was just in England, actually, and visited some museums where they talked about how Henry VIII did this, and they had to, they had to restore the monetary system under, under Queen Elizabeth uh, because he debased the currency so much. Uh, governments always have the ability to, uh, if, especially if they have control over the printing press, um, you know, to print more money to pay for, uh, for, uh, for government spending rather than raise taxes. And what that does is acts as a tax on everybody else because it makes all of our money less valuable. So even though it's not a direct tax where they take money out of your paycheck, it's an indirect tax where uh, your well-being is reduced because of the government's debasing the currency. So that's why monetary policy has that independence. So we don't have that temptation. I'm going to report that when I heard Neil Kashkari, the president of the Minneapolis Fed, talk at a Rotary meeting, one of the first questions he was asked was what we were going to do this is 10 years ago, maybe. What are we going to do when we've got $30 trillion in debt sitting on a $20 trillion economy? And he said, we'll probably print more money. And that's exactly what it looks like what we did. Uh, it just uh, like he was prescient, as it were. Because uh, that was before, or that was after the housing crisis. So mm-hmm. however many years ago that was. Um, Nate? Well, this is very interesting and, and has been another great conversation, but uh, I think this is where we need to end our program today. Yep. I'm Bruce well, I really Mor- appreciate you having me on. This was a really good, fun conversation. I appreciate it. <laughs> I have to say, I've been laughing and smiling the whole time off, off mic. But, um, I'm Bruce Moreland. My co-host ben, has been Nate Leaf. 
Uh, Joe, thank you for taking your time from your busy schedule and to share your wisdom and experience with us. And The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. This will conclude this edition of our program. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week, where we'll discuss college access and affordability. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.